Yeah, I, I, I told Charlie I wouldn't tell anyone it was his birthday. Um, oops. Hey, I'm, you know. You know what? A lot of us do not believe, do not fully grasp how much we should be celebrated. But one thing we know is God, like, delights in his children. And the more aligned we become with the heart of Jesus, uh, the more apt we are to celebrate one another, right? And accept celebration. So there's my sermon. <laughs> You're like, <"Phew."> no. <laughs> um, today uh, we are uh, continuing chapter 8. And this, th- you can do a year on this chapter. We're doing a couple weeks. So I'm not going to be touching on everything, but there is something to learn by people just doing a couple sermons on one book, and that's this. The scripture stories are a sponge full of water that no matter how much you wring it, you're never going to get everything out. So when you're reading scripture, and this especially comes out in like Lectio Divina and other practices, is you expect God to point something out, not everything out. And in kind of in a post-enlightenment, we've got everything figured out-ism type of world, there's this idea, if we do this verse-by-verse exegesis, we can get everything there is out of Scripture, and that's the thing. It's actually, sometimes you get, that's good, but there's the danger of getting nothing out of it because you're trying to get everything out of it, when the Holy Spirit's like saying, I just really want to point out this one thing, right? So that's the benefit sometimes of taking big chunks of Scripture and doing it that way. In fact, I'm a big fan of uh, giving some of your Netflix binge to Bible binging. If you got a Bible app and get an audio Bible, you, since you've been trained to listen to the spoken word, many of you, by podcasts, now we can listen to scripture and actually get it. And I encourage you like, to say, hey, Book of Matthew, I want to walk for an hour. And if you're, by the way, if you have ADD, it's been proven that listening, you can hear things three times faster than other people. And you'll get bored if you have normal speed, but if you do it at double speed or something, you'll actually comprehend it. And I found, like, I can do a gospel in an hour of walking. So if you happen to be non-neurotypical here, some of those things might be superpowers. And I actually did an experiment once where I listened to the gospel, a gospel, every day for six months. And it was, like, amazing. I was like, I I wish I could know every word of the book of Matthew like I know every word of the book of Star Wars. But I think that ship has sailed with my brain. Well, anyway, we're doing Matthew 8, and to begin by reading, I want to invite Haley Aka up, because she's awesome. And when they come here, it's like party time, because having a newborn and getting to church is epic skills. Good morning. We're reading Matthew 8, 18 through 34. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he instructed his disciples to cross to the other side of the lake. Then one of the teachers of religious law said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. But Jesus replied, foxes have dens to live in and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place even to lay his head. Another of his disciples said, Lord, first let me return home and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me now. Let the spiritually dead bury their own dead. Then Jesus got into the boat and started across the lake with his disciples. Suddenly, a fierce storm struck the lake with waves breaking into the boat, but Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him up, shouting, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. But Jesus responded, why are you afraid? You have so little faith. 
Then he got up and rebuked the wind and the waves, and suddenly there was a great calm. The disciples were amazed. Who is this man, they asked. Even the winds and waves obey him. When Jesus arrived on the other side of the lake in the region of the Gadarians, two men who were possessed with demons met him. They came out of the tombs and were so violent that no one could go through the area. They began screaming at him, why are you interfering with us, son of God? Have you come here to torture us before God's appointed time? There happened to be a large herd of pigs feeding in the distance, so the demons begged, if you cast us out, send us into that herd of pigs. All right, go, Jesus commanded them. So the demons came out of the men and entered the pigs, and the whole herd plunged down the steep hillside into the lake and drowned in the water. The herdsmen fled to the nearby town, telling everyone what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the entire town came out to meet Jesus, but they begged him to go away and leave them alone. This is the word of the Lord. And this was the first uh, recorded instance of swine flu. Okay, it's my bad dad joke of, you know, pigs, swine. Uh, if my kids were here, they would be the biggest groaners. But, you know, anyway. This passage, uh, it, this passage is paralleled elsewhere in the Gospels, and there's a lot more details given. And yet, only one person is focused on. This one focuses on two people, very scant on details, because, you know, one story... You can make so many points with one Jesus story because it's whenever he acted, whenever he spoke, whenever he's present to people, it was so multidimensionally good that you can really only grasp one facet of it at a time. And that's a lot of times in our life when, when, when God interacts with us, we see an immediate result of maybe some ways blessing us, but then years later we see, oh, that set me on a different course that helped in the area of this, this, and this. Because uh, a lot of times, you know, God is more than three-dimensional. And a lot of times we try to see a two-dimensional uh, reality to God. In this passage, um, you know, one thing you could uh, say about the, all the Gospels, you could call God of surprises. Because Jesus surprised everyone while revealing to them what the exact nature of God was. It says in Hebrews that before we had an imperfect picture, and Jesus is the shining clarity. And it says we have God-inspired accounts of how people encountered God, including the inspired recollection of when they got it wrong. You know, Jesus saying, you've heard it said, but I said, or... You know, uh, most people are programmed, if humans make a god, if humans make a god, they come up with things like Zeus. You know, God's going to throw lightning bolts at us, and we got to somehow, you know, every ancient Near Eastern religion involved sacrifice, whereas following Jesus involved the Eucharist, which, so you sacrifice to a deity in order to get them not to kill your crops and kill your children and blah, 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 in the Eucharist, in communion, what we're doing at the end of the service, Jesus sacrifices himself and gives us. So when we go to the Eucharist, we have hands open. When you go to sacrifice, you're, you're bowed down in fear, cutting an animal, trying to appease God, or even worse. And that's, it's interesting, because you know, a lot of times you'll hear, well, every religion hits the same beats and same wise, and there is some similarity, because God is good to reveal his goodness 
to people, and sometimes people grasp, grasp some of that. But the big distinction in one of the two ways followers of Jesus were uh, differentiated in the ancient world is we don't sacrifice, we receive. We don't sacrifice, we receive. And my hope today is that we all can receive deliverance because today um, kind of the thrust and title of the message is God of Surprises, Deliverance Starts Now. Deliverance Starts Now. And a, I'm getting, look, someone can get me some water? I don't, that's never happened to me before. Too much coffee. Um, anyway, um, man, help me Jesus. One basic premise of this whole message is that every human being, no matter how far gone, is intrinsically precious to Jesus. That human beings are precious. And we're, we are so, because, part because of being a global community and having so much access, we have access to tragedy in every section of the globe that it's sometimes easy for us to get uh, uh, numb to the suffering of an individual. And in fact, even in modern cities are designed and able to keep people of means from being able to even see poverty. You know, um, we don't have grids of streets where you intersect with people. We have endless tributaries of streets with uh, no front porch. In fact, except so even the architecture has evolved in a lot of places to keep us from the view of suffering. And not only do we have the Jesus who sees suffering, but we see the Jesus who travels through danger to meet an individual suffering. And I don't see like anyone here filling like the category of the gathering demoniac. You know, we have these, these two folks that are hanging out by the tombs, which in a more Gentile area, more of a Romanized area, um, it would have been in Jordan where Gadara was. Um, people believed in ghosts and their folk religions and stuff, and people were terrified of graves. And, and uh, the area of the tombs was also would have been unclean for the Jewish folk. And we, we know it's a Gentile area because they had pig farms. And, you know, Jewish people did not do bacon. It took the resurrection of the Son of God to help us to celebrate with bacon because then all things were made clean. But prior to that, you know, uh, bacon was off limits. But we see Jesus traveling through this storm. Through this storm. And once again, I, you got to put your imagine Jesus as Jesus really is kind of goggles on here. You know, some of our default voice is to read Jesus through the lens of a disappointed parent that is once again upset with you. So when he says, oh, you of little faith, oh, you of little faith, pathetic little dork, you know, we, we are Jesus, like, yeah, Jesus is just complaining about what a screw up you are again. But imagine, it, what if Jesus actually views us as like children that he delights in? When your child is scared and you get down, how many people have been in a thing where, where your child is freaking out and you, you bend down and you hold your kid and you're like, oh, we're going to protect you, honey. Ian, we've got you. We're here with you. You don't have anything to worry about. You know, when we kind of explain to them, like, you don't have to worry. I am here. 
You know, a little faith is it can be a growing faith. Everyone starts somewhere. And little faith is a beautiful starting point, but a lot of us have a grid that we view our faith in, like know these five things and win these six arguments and then wait until God beams us up so we don't really have to suffer anything, all of which is kind of a, a heresy that came up in the 1840s, but that's another long, convoluted story. But the idea that when we are baptized, when we, when we are given new birth in Christ, we start with something little that is continually getting bigger, but always little to an extent compared to the faithfulness of Jesus. So I, I just encourage you, when we read this, Jesus is like acknowledging these guys have little faith. And then he saves them. He saves them. He goes, well, if you don't have faith, you're going to get what you deserve. Oh, you want to show what little faith gets you? Okay, uh, have fun swimming back to home, town. Oh, Jesus delivered them. He commented that I've got this, my children. And he delivered them. Now, I want you to entertain an idea that many people throughout the history of the church have entertained, and that the reason this story comes right before the deliverance of the demoniac or two demoniacs, or demonized people, or demon-possessed, whatever terminology you want to use, is that this, the, the sea was symbolic, all the chaos of the storm the sea was symbolic of supernatural evil. And the idea is the great manifestation of supernatural evil uh, had such an effect that it affected the weather to try to prevent Jesus from getting to this place. And Jesus doesn't go through some elaborate ritual. He's like, stop, dude. You know, he just, be calm. You know, Jesus, Jesus uh, if you were to book How to Pray Like Jesus, it would be really short because his prayers... We, other than the one in, uh, you know, as he's praying to Gethsemane. I'm sure he prayed long, too. But I'm saying, when it comes to asking for things, Jesus doesn't try to flower it up. The longer I pray, I'm going to get it. He's just like, authority, do it. And Jesus calmed it, and then they get to this place, Gadara. Now, uh, Gadara was known, uh, and would have been known by all the uh, readers of this place, is the hotbed of healing. You know, in, in the uh, ancient Roman world, uh, Corinth was known for that because it had the great temple of Asclepius. If you've ever seen the snakes wrapped around, kind of the pole of the doctor, Asclepius was like a healing snake. It's kind of a, it doesn't work, by the way. You know, snakes, don't ask with them. Um, anyway, uh, they had this healing snake temple there, and that's what uh, the Corinthian church was kind of coming out of worship of that. But uh, one of the other more prominent places of healing was Gadara. And it's basically this Roman building with several baths. And people would go into the baths, kind of like the Pool of Siloam, where Jesus ended up healing the guy that couldn't get in. But they would go to these baths and get healed. And it's interesting that one of the most afflicted, or the two of the most afflicted people that we see in the entirety of Scripture lived in the best place of healing of the area, and apparently, uh, at the onset of this stuff, the healing pools of Gadara didn't work. But Jesus crossing over into Gentile territories and interacting with these guys, in the tombs no less, did set them free. And uh, we don't have a... This is a very abbreviated version of the story. And there's one element of it that, I, that is, I think, Matthew's big push. And that is 
this legion of demons, or all these demons, plural, are inhabiting these folks. Wait, before I go there, by the way, we're talking about like demons and possession and demonization stuff. You're like, some of you are like, okay, we're going into little freaky deaky territory. I just, this, this is simply a metaphor that blah, blah, blah. Well, there is metaphorical value and worth in this, but can I just say something about angels and demons? First off, uh, the church has done a disservice by over-explaining this. In fact, uh, one, of the wor- one of the most uh, violent and corrupt leaders who claimed Christ in history was King James. And King James loved demonology. He wrote a huge book on it. Meanwhile, he sexually exploited people and was a man of violence and all this other stuff. And it, there's some, like, fetish that people have with wanting to know the exact hierarchy and the demonology, and you need to do this. And the exorcism came from just praying for God's compassion and deliverance and became this huge right to the point where, in, in some contexts, you're not allowed to pray for deliverance unless you get approval through a big bureaucracy. I don't see Jesus as filling out any paperwork on this thing. All right? So uh, a lot of times there is a ridiculousness because people build the hierarchy uh, of demons. And uh, frankly, uh, are these demons angels? Are they, do they have bodies? Are they just spirits? Well, that's two categories we think, embodied and disembodied. Like, and it appears if something can inhabit someone or a spirit can take them over, that, uh, that would be disembodied. But, you know, we have people encounter angels that have substance, too. So I think now we have another category called other-dimensional or multi-dimensional, right? That maybe our categories don't fit what these beings are. And that God doesn't merely... Uh, God has not limited his creation to only beings that we can measure with science at his current state. Okay, God, God creates... It, dimensions that I think we can never even conceive of. His creation, we see a limited spectrum. God sees a 360. One day I believe we'll be able to see too. Um, so these other dimensional, or these beings, listen, if you believe in God or a higher power, you've already crossed the biggest worldview, or if you even believe in the force for God, if you believe in any kind of supernatural reality, it's not that much of a step to believe angels and demons. It's just freaky. It is. And I'm telling you, the Bible is not there to not freak us out. The Bible was, you know, they didn't have an editor. Well, Thomas Jefferson tried to cut out all the freaky stuff. And uh, I think you can still get it in print, the Jefferson Bible. But it is a lot more boring, frankly. And, uh, but I do believe, I personally believe, and I believe I've encountered folks that have been oppressed by supernatural evil. You know, uh, but elsewhere in scripture it says Satan often disguises himself as an angel of light. In a western rationalistic world, you know, most people who have a Judeo-Christian background, if they see someone manifesting like exorcist type uh, symptoms, you know, screaming, yelling, having knowledge they couldn't otherwise have, uh, unearthly strength, immediately they're going to default. God is real, Jesus is real, I need some Jesus. So it wouldn't really suit the Satan to tip his poker hand in Western culture. Now that's, we're in a, a, a liminal space right now where culture is evolving, where 
you know, the popularity of whether it's tarot readings or, you know, psychic healing or all these other things that people are much, maybe that's shifting. But when I spend time in areas, especially like in uh, villages in Cambodia and stuff, these people don't necessarily have a Christian worldview, but they have a worldview that supernatural nature is opposed to us. And we need to do everything or it will destroy us. And I have times where I've literally spent like an hour just sitting with someone and praying, not with a ton of words, but just being present with someone as they're like shaking and feeling like this demonic manifestation. And I've seen, manif I've seen the demonic uh, manifest it in three young girls who were perpetually on their period. And they had been to a spirit healer and they all had a right, right side paralysis. I saw them healed. Most of the time I pray for people, I don't really see anything happen. But I, it was, I've seen enough to know there's a reality here. And, um, but what I think is, I doubt, since none of you are hanging out at Good Ale Cemetery, tearing your clothes off, yelling at people with unearthly strength, I doubt any of you fit the exact category of the gathering demoniac. But what I want to suggest today is we all need deliverance. Because even if there were not uh, personal demonic entities in this world, that there were more people on the playing board than we realize, we have the unique ability to self-oppress, and we have the human ability to oppress others. And we need to be delivered often from the pattern that was damaged our brain from our family of origin. You know, a lot of us have structures that inhabit our lives that keep us chained up and keep us isolated. And I think it's important to think of what this oppression did to these two precious people. Number one, they were at the tombs. It's like no one went to the tombs. No one went to the graveyard. So they were isolated from community. If you're always staying there and you're like manifesting demons, friendship is not in the cards. And one of the things like demonization all the way to oppressed by your own intrinsic brokenness, or not intrinsic brokenness, but formed brokenness, isolates us from real community. And I've seen people who may even be amongst big crowds of people that are an affinity group of theirs, yet they are completely isolated from any true human heart and soul connection. I have a dear friend of mine who I sometimes suspect might be teetering on this category. And I've seen no matter how many people my friend is around, uh, these patterns in their life that are inescapable by their admission, inescapable, isolate them from having a true friend in the world. A true friend in the world. Um, I know this in a way be because th this friend is a devout atheist, but they, uh, you know, it's mere Ian that they'll interact with for prayer that knows the, what's behind the behind. And it just breaks my heart. All the efforts that the enemy is unleashed to isolate us from God. So first thing, it isolates you. And second, we know from the parallel passage that these guys practice self-harm and would cut themselves. And this idea is, man, 
it uh, definitely seems like we're in a world like the, ga the Gadara demons are back in place because what could be more evil than people harming themselves? You know, it's self-harm. It's like, if you're, I mean, imagine, it's, God is looking at his precious little children and they're hurting themselves. As a parent, does any, can anything break our heart if you are a parent more than a child injuring themselves on purpose? Could anything, or being isolated from having any community, could anything break you? This is what an offense this was to God, to the point where Jesus traveled out of anyone's comfort zone to go here, was resisted by the storm, and did this healing. Now, in the par I am going to cheat a little and go to the parallel passage. It talks about uh, the, the man like falling down at Jesus' feet when he first comes, which gives us a clue that there was some free will left in this. I don't believe anyone becomes a sock puppet for the devil. We, because God is a relational God, God always invites us to engage in relationship. And even if it's just a tiny sliver, there's always that little inroad. And Jesus loves tiny slivers. He'll work with tiny slivers where he can work into their life. So I believe that indicates that this person, the smallest bit of them, wanted freedom. Wanted freedom. And that's all Jesus needs. Jesus does not need your certainty. Jesus does not need your certainty. That's a relative newer. Jesus, just be open to encounter Jesus where you're at. And he will begin the process of deliverance. Sometimes... It, it happens, most of the time, it's a rhythm of life that renovates our souls. Um, probably should look at my notes. So the demons, the, here's what I'm going to say, the, the demons like try to get off on a technicality. They're like, hey, it's not the appointed time. You know, and they were talking about the final judgment. It's like, you can't deal with us until the final judgment. And Jesus is like, oh, man, you must have read that Darby stuff. No, no, I don't work on a grid here. Je Jesus is like, I don't work on a grid. I, uh, yeah, one day all things are going to be set to rights, but that doesn't stop me and my peeps doing a bunch of right stuff now. And uh, it's not like Jesus is not a slave. You know, someone uh, was able to boil down the story into their set of rules, like a role-playing game manual with no story elements, and just crunches and says, you, you can't do this. This is, this is time. This is before the point in time. <laughs> this is one of the clearest passages that demonstrates something we believe about God's kingdom, his authority, reign, and rule. And he said, it's already and not yet. Meaning, it's not like God shifts gears there's a clutch that gets pulled in. Well, it transitions to one gear or the other. We live in between times. We live after the resurrection of Jesus, who suffered all the evil impression and oppression could dish out, torture and death and humiliation, and, you know, naked on a cross, so it's called sexual exploitation too. Jesus suffered every kind of human suffering and then comes back three days. Is that all you got? Jesus wins over abuse. And then we live with that time, but when you talk about the return of Christ, where all this collective human dream of a world of harmony, of love, of beauty, of justice, 
justice like a river, a tree where birds from everyone can, everywhere can rest in its branches. You know, the lion and the lamb, all these swords and guns turned to plowshares for food, for all the feasting that's going to be happening. We live in a time where we see heaven and hell right now. You know, there are precious, precious brothers and sisters in Russia and Ukraine. Right now, so many people caught up in the machinations of a few evil people, forced into this violence. I mean, talk about, I mean, I personally believe there is not only human evil, but the demonic empowerment to the discord we see there. We, hell is real, as the famous Ohio billboard says. It's kind of a meme on Reddit. Hell is real in their experience. Heaven is real. Heaven is real. And kind of just say, precious Central Vineyard, you guys are great carriers of heaven. I feel like, you know, the, the work of the people of God one element of worship isn't just these official things we do, is as we surrender our life to God, we become mobile enactors of deliverance. Sometimes uh, at a low level, potentially a high level. Just a side note, if, someone, if you believe you are, like, if your depression isn't just clinical, but there's maybe spiritual empowerment to your depression, if you have cycling bad thoughts telling you lies about yourself, listen, I've got those at a clinical level, and I take medication for it, like for my negativity and OCD. And I've got obsessive compulsive disorder, and part of the is the negative stuff gets repeated. You know, and wonders to what level, could, at, at various times, there's a time in life where I thought it was partnered with demonically, because of some unforgiveness I had in my heart, I made room for spiritual oppression to superpower the negativity in my head. And as I began, as, as someone uh, confronted me and said, you need to repent for hating this person, as I did that, I literally went to the, I had to run to the kitchen and start throwing up. And I'm weirding you out, I know. But what I felt, though, is I felt such joy because I wasn't feeling the hate. And literally this, 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 uh, this uh, traumatic hate in my heart left with the vomit of whatever ho-hos I had that day. I'm off ho-hos, praise God. And at the end, it's like, I'm not feeling like, oh my gosh, I'm like, I want to laugh. I want to go out and party or something, because I felt free of hatred. And I believe that hatred was spiritually fueled by other entities other than myself. But if there was no demonic force of evil on this world, we are, we are hurting enough to hurt other people in deliverance here, and wherever you're at, every single beating heart in this room, all of us can benefit from deliverance. And you know, one of the chief ways uh, uh, deliverance or uh, practicing the lifestyle of Jesus crowds out the junk. You know, Jesus lived the lifestyle, we see this at the beginning of the Gospels, where, you know, he gathers a community of people that share life together, break bread together, he, he, they pray together. Jesus lives a life of every day spending time in total silence and praying early in the morning. He, he would escape, he would ditch his people, he would Holy Ghost on them and go get prayer. You know, and then Jesus would go among the suffering and bring them into the deliverance life. You know, community prayer and engaging suffering. And Jesus lived that. And that, um, 
I remember I had a very wise uh, friend when I was in university said one of the best ways to get free is practice the simple rhythms of Jesus. Practice the simple rhythms of Jesus. It's not this arcane ritual. It's saying, Jesus, I can't do life. It's saying, uh, Jesus, I give up. I give you. I give up and I give you. It's that leap of faith, whether it's a splinter of faith or it's something you feel totally assured of, that the reason we long for relationship, transcendence, beauty, and justice, because we're made in the image of a just, beautiful, transcendent, relational God. And that maybe just like we, were, we exist and we need water, the reason why we have those longings is because there is a God. And what God looks just like Jesus? Just believing in God can be a bummer, especially if they look like Zeus, which a lot of Christians believe God's more like Zeus. It's like, he wants to strike the Muslims down. You know, you know those churches in America? Oh, speak of need of deliverance. There's a, there probably is a legion out behind that hating the other stuff. If you feel like you have uh, demonically aggravated oppression, we do pray for people that. We don't do it in front of people because we know one thing, the enemy wants to have the process. If, 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 if someone's going to get delivered, the enemy wants it to be really sensational so people feel embarrassed. So we like to do things really kind of, we, we, we like to do things very privately because I think there's so much deliverance, be it a literal deliverance or a gradual uh, deliverance where there's not demons involved, so much of it happens in our private lives, and we just want to dignify people. We don't want to put on a dog and pony show. Uh, but we, we have to have a, I mean, we had one time service, someone came up, and we just took someone behind uh, the stage where we were meeting and took care of it. So, but, listen, guys, in this room, there's, there's so many degrees of self-hatred. Uh, there's so many degrees of self-harm. It could be literal cutting, or it could be medicating, with substances or food that is killing your body. I call it like slow motion suicide. You know, uh, whatever we're using to take the burn of isolation we feel. You know, and I know, you extroverts, isn't it true that you can talk to anyone and still feel totally alone? Anyone? You extroverts, you know that? It's like, it, you don't have to be quiet to yourself to feel isolated. Trust me, I've proven that over and over. I, you know, know a few thousand people, and I spend a lot of my life feeling isolated just because, and God has healed so much of that, but I'm not stopping there. I want some more, please. But let, let's stand and have the worship folks come up. By the way, people got really annoyed that Jesus did this because they ran into the pigs, right? And you're like, man, Jesus is awful. He's very bad vegan. Why would he kill all those pigs? By the way, Jesus didn't kill any pigs. Jesus gave the demonic entities free will and free agency to go where they wanted to go. God is a relational God, and generally, he, like, he gives everyone some level of agency or complete agency. And a lot of what disappoints us about God, a lot of what really makes us feel like God doesn't care is because free will of other people hurts us so bad. Why did God let their free will go? Well, that's the other side of the coin of relational being. Is he's not going to make someone else a puppet on your behalf. Because he's going to give them an opportunity to choose as well. Um, 
Central Vineyard, I just, you guys are deliverers. You know, one form of isolation, immigrants that need housing. Many of you help with one good home. Uh, Another form of isolation, being an orphan child in Cambodia and being in the pipeline to be trafficked or abused. And you guys have acted, you know, one way to suffer in our pocketbook is one way deliverance happens. In fact, the gathering folks were really upset about Jesus and evicted him from town because they lost their financial security because Jesus set someone free. Deliverance costs money, time, and relationship. And you guys have been faithful to even spend your money on delivering people. But friends, God's not finished with any of us yet. He offers you deliverance. You know, I've told you a little bit about my story. I'm not always uh, comfortable doing that, but the reason I say that is I think everyone's got something to hide. I think everyone's got something. Everyone's got a shadow they don't want anyone to know about. And we're going to have people, uh, a prayer team come up to us. We want to pray for you. What I'm going to encourage you to do is we're going to share the Lord's Supper. Remember I was talking about the Eucharist? This is one of the two, this in baptism, I, I mean, really made Christians this, the, the target of scorn. No one could conceive of receiving instead of sacrificing. But I want to ask you to come and receive these elements that represent the body and the blood of Jesus. I believe Jesus is present as we do this, that we have solidarity of 2,000 years of Jesus followers engaging us. And the idea is you are what you eat. We all want to be like Jesus. But I encourage you as we go forward for the Eucharist, linger in one of these areas and receive prayer. And we want to pray. If you feel like you want to be empowered to be a delivering component of the reign and rule of Jesus, if you want to start violating Satan's little grid in order of operations, if you want to break the Satan algorithm, is that we have to delay until the second coming to receive the kingdom. If you want to fight against that, we're going to say kingdom now. You know, dancing between the teardrops is the Christian life. I want to read, uh, I modified some of what I read from some of the early church fathers, and I thought it was really poetic, so I thought I wanted to say this is a reading for you. Don't you just bow our heads, close our eyes, make this like kind of a temporary, uh, private place. This, um... I want to read this, and I want you to imagine, like, ex- whatever your brain partners with you to experience, imagine God's love for you. Jesus had caught them in the act, perpetrating such horrors, so incurable and lawless and deforming, punishing God's creation in every way because their crimes were so excessive. They supposed that Jesus would not delay in punishing them. They besought and entreated him. They, who had not even endured bonds of iron, became bound. They, who ran about the mountains, went forth into the plain. They who hindered all others from passing stood still in this, at his, the sight of Jesus blocking the way. They that hindered all others from passing stood still at the sight 
of Jesus blocking the way. Father God, have mercy on us. You are mercy on God, stand in the way of all that seeks to oppress us and allow us to do the same. In the name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, just before we do communion, I just want to take about a minute in silence and just see if God speaks anything. That's because sometimes there's something very specific that can help lead us on the path of deliverance. Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, come.